You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight's going to be another part of the Salamander series, which is a little series that I'm going to be running uh, on and off throughout the course of the show over the next couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months. And we're going to touch on some Salamander content. I had uh, gotten some feedback from a lot of the listeners, and uh, a lot of you guys want to see, uh, or excuse me, hear a little bit broader content. And uh, I know I focus a lot on the dart frogs because it's kind of in my comfort zone, but uh, it is an amphibian podcast and I wanted to get in some salamander content because I do like them. And it's, they're really the first, the first amphibian species that I ever kept before I even started with frogs uh, back in the old days, you could say. So tonight I've got a great guest. I've got Mike Lardis of Slithering Salamanderscapes. He's got a really amazing YouTube channel and he's a pretty accomplished hobbyist. So I'm going to pick his brain about some different things that he's working with and some of the species that he's he's got and uh, just really from the ground up because uh, I'm not really too too top-notch on my salamander game, so he's going to kind of enlighten me in terms of the Captain Puzzlendry aspects of it. But uh, First and foremost, though, I want to thank everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Again, five-star review on Apple Podcasts is a great way to support the show. Another great way to support the show is becoming a patron on Patreon. I have two tiers. I have a $3 tier and the $5 tier. And the $5 tier will get you a shout-out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And while we're on shout-outs, I do want to take a moment to recognize a new Patreon. Uh, I want to thank her for being patient. I know it's been a couple of weeks since we touched base, but I want to give a shout-out to Brooke. And Brooke, thank you for uh, your patronage. Thank you for deciding to support the show. Greatly appreciate it. And, of course, another great way to support the show is just by listening. I always appreciate audience feedback. Uh, I'd like to know that you guys are listening to the show. And tonight's, you know, uh, in, uh, function of input as well. Uh, you guys gave me some input. This is the kind of content that you're looking for, and I'm happy to do it. So let's move on to tonight's uh, topic because I don't want to take too much time away, but uh, I want to welcome Mike Lardis. Mike, how are you doing? It's a real pleasure to have you on. What's going on? Hey, good, good. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. I'm uh, definitely a longtime listener, so uh, excited to be on the show. Uh, no, it's my it's my pleasure. You've got um, You've got quite a bit going on, actually, but... But before we get into what you're keeping and what you're working with, why don't we start at the beginning and why don't you tell us your story? What were your earliest experiences with salamanders or amphibians in general like, and how did you end up where you are today? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, as a, as a child, you know, growing up in the 80s, I, I always had, you know, I think I probably started with reptiles. I think that's kind of where the the fascination with with amphibians began. But but I had reptiles first. I, I do remember that. Um, and you know, I think over time um, it, it, it kind of started to evolve a little bit. I became a little more interested in frogs and things. I still wasn't really. I, I probably didn't even know what a salamander was to be honest at the time. But so I remember actually one specific event. My father and I uh, went fishing at a reservoir close to our house, and like we weren't catching anything. You know, we were. <laughs> catching some small brim or sunfish. And, uh, and I remember him saying, Hey, you know, Mike, let's take a hike in the woods. And I'm like, hike, you know, I'm like, we're going to, we're not going to go fish anymore. And I remember him kind of kicking over a log and there were some redback salamanders and, you know, I was into lizards and things. And so he showed me, he's like, Oh, Hey, you know, these are, these are salamanders they are actually amphibians. And, and I, I, that was amazing to me, you know, at the time I, I couldn't believe it. I, I was like, Oh, these, they look like lizards, but they're not, they're, they're salamanders and they're amphibians. And, you know, so that, that's kind of like, I, I re- like distinctly remember my first experience with salamanders and my father kind of introducing me to them. And, my, you know, it was interesting because my father uh, is a retired um, Navy captain, but he, he was um, by education, he is an aquatic ecologist and uh, specifically studied limnology, which is like the study of freshwater systems and things like that. And so I think that's kind of what 
planted the seed with me in terms of, uh, you know, salamanders and, 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 and starting to pay more attention to uh, freshwater systems and what lives in and around those. And, um, and then, you know, there, there was also other folks in my life. Like uh, I have a cousin uh, who lives in Cleveland. He's an entomologist and um, him and his brother uh, were, were always big into going out herping and looking for, for animals out in, you know, out in nature, specifically amphibians. And, and so there were, you know, we, we spent a lot of time doing that and learning about new species. So I had a, a nice kind of introduction to uh, salamanders and it's just one of these things that never really uh, kind of, you know, waned over the years. I was always interested in it. There was times I was more into the hobby, I guess, you know, when I was younger and, and then, you know, when I was kind of in college and, and, and you know, I was working in big cities because I, I work in finance, so I, I didn't really have a lot of time, but uh, I would always take trips. I, I lived in, you know, in your neck of the woods. I was in New York City and um, I remember taking trips to the Adirondacks, you know, and, you know, just get out of, you know, escape, the, you know, escape from New York, if, if you will, for the weekend and um, and uh, just get get to, uh, you know, like some really nice, pretty habitats up in the Adirondacks and just kind of, you know, walking along streams and, and, and other things in the mountains and always still looking for salamanders and, and, and taking cool pictures and and just kind of the, the hobby just really never went away. It was just that I didn't have the time for a number of years. And then when I moved back to where I live now out of the city, uh, you know, it, it became a much bigger focal point of my life. It just, you know, it's just something that, you know, that never really uh, went away. And, and so, you know, I'm kind of, you know, over <laughs> slowly kind of, but surely got back into the hobby and, and now I'm probably as deep as I've ever been. So <laughs> it's amazing how it just sort of pulls you back in. You know, it's like you're, when you're young, you have these memories of things that just sort of seem like this is where you belong. And then you get older and you, 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 you kind of stray from the path, so to speak. And then you kind of reach another point in your life where you think to yourself, like, I, I kind of need to go back to where it all began, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yep, definitely. So which species are you working with today? Well, it, it's, I guess the, the question is what species am I not working with? <laughs> it's a, it's, there's, there's a lot of, there's, there's, there's quite a few, probably more than um, my wife would be happy about, but um, you know, it's interesting. I started, you know, when I, I moved back in 2015 from New York, uh, there was a friend of mine whose daughter had gotten some Eastern newts and they were keeping them in like a, a fishbowl, like a, like an air, air stone. And they're like, Mike, we know you used to be into this, you know, we're, we're just, this is something that we're not really comfortable with at this point. We didn't, we didn't really do our research. We kind of took in. So at that point it was too late to kind of release them. They've had them for a while. So I said, sure. You know, I, I built a kind of modest enclosure and, and that's, you know, thus started the hobby again and with, with Eastern newts. And so, you know, that's one thing I have. I have Eastern newts uh, in a paludarium. I have uh, tiger salamanders. So I have two different, um, I guess you could say subspecies. I have the blotched tiger salamanders and I also have the um, barred tiger salamanders as well, which, which kind of come from you know, more of the southwest part of the country. Um, I have a northern red salamander, which is the uh, most common out of the pseudo triton ruber. So those are the you know the red salamanders. Uh, but but I have a northern red. I have three black chin red salamanders, which are uh, pseudo triton ruber snecky. Um, I have northern slimy salamanders. I have cave salamanders. I have two uh, vastly growing greater sirens. I have a northern spring salamander. I have two Carolina spring salamanders. I have arboreal salamanders. And then just today, I got some red-legged salamanders. 
which I'm really excited about. And I'm going to be doing a, uh, a YouTube video on that to introduce them to a vivarium uh, here shortly. And then randomly, I have three green frogs, just, you know, northern green frogs, I believe now they're just technically called green frogs. So quite, quite a few enclosures. Go, go team frog. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I so, love watching them. They're great. So I'm trying to, again, I'm, I'm not really much of a salamander person myself, but I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around some of the different methods of care. And um, I've seen your videos. I've seen you've got a lot of paludariums, but I'm curious. And it's funny because I'm looking at my notes. I realized I should have added a, a third thing here because I was going to ask you originally the differences between terrestrial and aquatic, but then I remembered there is also arboreal. So can you run us through maybe some of the different types of husbandry setups that might be unique to each stage? And I know, I know a lot of them overlap, but um, what are some of the main differences between like, just say terrestrial and aquatic care? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting because most salamanders, and I say most because it's not all, but most salamanders are, have an aquatic larval stage where they, you know, where they're, they've got feathery gills and they look like, you know, mini axolotls, you know, they're, they're eating, you know, and, you know, like mosquito larvae and larvae and things like that. And, you know, as they grow and then they become terrestrial or, you know, semi-aquatic, uh, depending on, on the species. But, um, but yeah, you, you know, for sure. And then you've also got some, uh, some, you know, kind of woodland salamanders, which never have a, an aquatic, uh, phase, you know, where they have gills, they, they, they go through that when they're in the egg. And then when they come out, they look like little miniatures of the adults, like arboreal salamanders and green salamanders. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's definitely different uh, setups. It depends what stage of life you get the animal in, I, I would say. Um, you know, most of my enclosures are, are paludariums because most of these animals lay eggs in the water, uh, but some don't like arboreal salamanders don't and, uh, you know, green salamanders don't. Uh, so things like that, and neither do uh, red-legged salamanders. So it, it, it just depends, really. But I think the care is is a little different. I mean, you know, when you're thinking of a paludarium versus like a vivarium, terrarium, uh, I, in my opinion, I think having any kind of water feature makes it more difficult. I mean, j j for one, just the amount of water changes you have to do. You know, you have to be checking the water parameters. Do you have an algae outbreak or, you know, a cyanobacteria outbreak, which I've had. Um, so I, I think ha anytime you have a water feature and then you've also got land features and you know, you've got a drainage layer and you've kind of sealed it off and it, it just, it's a lot more maintenance. So the, the care is definitely, I think a little bit more difficult when you're, when you're keeping, uh, you know, streamed to like brook salamanders, like red salamanders and things like that, because, you know, I, you don't have to, but I, I incorporate because if they do breed and I don't breed my animals, but if, if they do breed, I want them to, to, to have the you know, proper habitat to, to do it, you know, if it, if it strikes their fancy, I guess. So. And as far as different lifestyle, uh, excuse me, life, not lifestyles, <laughs> life stages, <laughs> excuse me. I know with, with newts, you've got the larval stage, then you've got the F stage, which is, I guess, almost fully terrestrial. And then the adults kind of return to the water. Have you ever had to make different vivariums or move any of your amphibia uh, move any of your salamanders because they were in different life stages at all yeah so i you know when i got some my 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 blotched tiger salamanders uh, the person that i got them from was saying you know they're they're fully adult right you know they, they, they've got lungs you know they're at that point tiger salamanders are fossorial you know except when they breathe and they go to their vernal pools but 
so I had set up a, a, a like a 75 gallon Bavarian, you know, with just, you know, lots of substrate and planted and, you know, it was bioactive, you know, kind of hashtag bioactive, right? You know, I had <laughs> springtails and things like that in there. And so uh, when I got them, though, I realized that they were still, all three of them were in their larval phase. So they were like, you know, water dogs or, you know, whatever you want to call them. They were. And so I, I had to completely because at that point, I, I that was the only enclosure I had for them. I had to basically gut what I had built and build kind of like a palladarium. You know, I had you know, half of it was set up for land and half of it was set up for water until they could metamorphose, you know, into into adults. And then at that point, I just changed it out to um, to a completely terrestrial enclosure just because they spend so much time underground, as do most uh, ambistema, you know, the genus for, you know, uh, salamanders with lungs you know like mole salamanders you know spotted salamanders marbled salamanders tiger salamanders things like that so so yeah i, I have um you know i've never had any eastern newts that were in the f stage i've seen a lot of red f's you know which is the the f stage and you know I just see them crawling around when i go hiking you know just anywhere like kind of like along the forest floor they, they stick out because they're so bright um you know kind of that orangey red color um but i've you know the, the eastern newts i've always had have been adults so it's it's kind of a pretty simple setup you know mainly aquatic a place for them to haul out they're good to go but um but yeah so so it, it can happen i mean you know like even with um, my spring salamanders and all of my red salamanders um, they all came as as um larvae and so to you know they they I, which is why i, I build paludariums more than anything else because it kind of covers you you know from having to kind of tear it down and, and sometimes you have to do that anyways right you know you're in the hobby you know like sometimes the enclosure is just not working for one reason or another and you, you got to like kind of tear down and redesign yeah the dreaded lifestyle uh, life cycle change i keep saying lifestyle as if it's uh <laughs> <laughs> right, right. yeah i've had that experience too where i've made some errors doing vivarium builds and some of them i just kind of left i mean the main thing actually was water features which I've spoken to other people about. I'm not a big fan of water features in dart frog enclosures. And um, some of the, you know, of course, when I got started doing my own builds, I wanted to have these big elaborate water features and they were a lot more trouble than they were worth. So I ended up just filling them in with whatever I had available and kind of just like, um, kind of just mothballing them. But yeah, it can definitely be a challenge when you have to accommodate a different life stage or an animal grows or you have to kind of tweak the enclosure. Right. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's hard. And, and I'm, 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 you know, to be honest, you know, right now I've got, you know, these, these black chin red salamanders, which are, which are amazing. They're some of my favorite. They're super bright and, you know, but one of them is refusing to, to morph. And, and, you know, I, you know, they're, I've, I've had them for about a year and two of them are completely morphed out. And the other one is just kind of refusing and it can take up to three and a half years for some of them to, to morph. So I'm like, how long? And I've got a leak into the land area. So I constantly draining the, you know, the, the false bottom in the land area. And it's just, it's going to be a complete redo for me. I, I, I really like the enclosure. It's great. It's like a shale drip wall effect and it's got moss growing and liverworts. It's, it's beautiful. But the problem is, is that, you know, I just can't, I can't reverse engineer what I, what I did and fix it at this point. It's just going to have to be a, a redo. So I'm just, I'm waiting for this one animal to, to morph out and I can build something a little bit more appropriate and, uh, you know, and still have a water feature, but not as big of a water feature. Yeah. It's always, it's always so frustrating when you know you have to kind of just bite the bullet and tear everything down. Right. Exactly. So I'm curious about a couple of the species you keep and, and I, 
I would love to just go through every one of them one by one, but just for the sake of time, I'd like to maybe focus on two. So, I mean, my eye immediately was drawn to Pseudotriton ruber. And I know that you can elaborate more. I know there's a couple of subspecies in there just because their their coloration, at least to me, is, is amazing. I was wondering if you could walk us through their care from start to finish and then maybe something that's a little different, like maybe like one of the, um, the Ambistoma species. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yeah, Pseudotriton ruber, you know, the red salamander, there's four, I guess you want to say subspecies, which is Pseudotriton ruber ruber, which is the um, northern red salamander. You've got the black chin red salamander, um, which is the other, you know, subspecies I keep. And then there's two other ones. There's like a southern red salamander, which I've, the, the coloration's a little bit more dull on them. I've, I've actually never caught one or, or seen one in the wild. And a Blue Ridge, I believe, I believe it's a Blue Ridge red salamander. And I've also ne- never seen one of those in the wild either, um, just because of where I live. I mean, the most common one is the northern red salamander. It's by far the most widely dispersed of, of, of the four. Uh, it's, it's, it's the one that, that lives where I live. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you know, in terms of care, I mean, there's people who keep them both terrestrial and aquatic, uh, you know, again, with a place to haul out, even if they're adults. Um, I, again, I opt for both. I do the palludarium because I want them to be able to get out of the water and be able to regulate their, their bodies if they, you know, don't want to be in the water all the time. And, but I also want to make sure that if they want to breed at some point, you know, that, that they have the, the habitat to, to go ahead and do it again. That's not why I do this, but, um, and so big, big things with, I guess, keeping them, you know, in a paludarium for me, again, just speaking from my own experiences, water quality, just making sure to constantly do the water changes, keeping the water parameters, you know, good, you know, making sure there's no, you know, the nitrates and nitrites aren't too high and, you know, the water's not too hard. There's no chlorine, obviously, uh, you know, and, and, obvi- and then the temperature is the other big thing. You know, they, these animals like cooler temperatures. So you're thinking, you know, I, I keep mine in my basement. I have a room that I built specifically for all, you know, all these animals stay at a pretty similar temperature. And so, uh, you know, keeping them kind of in the 60s, you know, it, it, I, I would say it doesn't get higher than the low 70s in the summertime, even during the hottest days. And then I would say it gets maybe in the high fifties. And so I keep it kind of in that sweet spot. They seem to, to do really well and, and, and be very active and, uh, and thrive at that temperature. So water quality temperature with, you know, a red salamander, um, you know, feeding them, I, I feed them a, a variety of things, you know, when they're larvae, I feed them like live blackworms, which I, I can't stand. They, they gross me out, but cause I have to constantly wash the, 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 the blackworm container out and, you know, every single day, actually. And, and so I, I, I feed them blackworms, live blackworms. I feed them uh, crickets that are like dusted with rapashi, you know, so it's got the calcium and other stuff, the smaller crickets and then small earthworms, you know, like small nightcrawlers or pieces of nightcrawlers. They, they eat those up. And so I, I try to keep their, 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 their diet varied. You know, it's, it's really hard to try to replicate everything that they eat, um, you know, and, and sometimes I'll give them like a waxworm or something like that because it's got a higher fat content. But, um, you know, just, just trying to give them a varied diet, making sure they're getting, you know, as many nutrients and vitamins as, you know, that I can do in a, in a glass box, I guess. And so in terms of that, uh, you know, the, the environment, you know, like I, again, I, I have like kind of a drip wall. So there's, I have kind of like driftwood and, uh, and, and rock kind of foamed into the background and I've got, you know, an external canister filter. So I, I typically use, um, you know, one that's able to pump, you know, up to 40 to 50 gallons per hour, even if there's only like 15 or 20 gallons of water in there. 
uh, just to keep it keep it clean. I maintain the filters. You know, every you know four to six months, I'll clean the filters out because they don't get too junked up with that little bit of water. And then, you know, in terms of the plants, you know, I try to use native stuff. It's it's hard. I I know when we were talking offline, I had mentioned uh, it's it's harder to keep temperate mosses in a really good condition in some of these enclosures unless you have the right humidity. And sometimes the right humidity can kill other plants if there's not a lot of airflow. And so it's 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 a challenge. I'm still trying to perfect the uh, you know having the moss and, you know, be looking nice and fresh all the time and, and growing. Um, and I do, it, it, it is, it's working. So, but, but yeah, I typically use liverworts, mosses, like I, I'll find like fountain moss or brook moss um, uh, out in, you know, nature. And I'll take little pieces of that and, uh, liverworts, like snakeskin liverworts and things. And, you know, ferns, I use different ferns. And, and sometimes I will use other things like Java moss just because it grows so well in the, um, uh, you know, in the water, you know, so if I, I put it on the back of the drip ball, it expands so fast and it, it has a nice effect. And, and you know, other things, you know, I'll use like a golden pothos. Those things are pretty bulletproof. So I'll, I use those in a lot of my enclosures. But I mean, that's that's kind of it. I mean, it's it's, you know, having, you know, I have a day day and night cycle with the lights for them, uh, you know, about eight or nine hours on and then, you know, the rest dark. You know, they're like all, you know, most amphibians, they're nocturnal. I see them more at night. They come out and they hunt and things like that. So. You know, I, I would say in a nutshell, that's kind of it. I actually recently uh, did a YouTube video on a red, you know, kind of an abbreviated care guide uh, for, for red salamanders. But, but yeah, that's kind of it. And then um, I think you wanted to, you, you had mentioned also an Abistema genus, like, like a tiger salamander or something like that. Um, those, those, in my opinion, are a lot easier to take care of, uh, you know, unless you have like a palliadarium. If you have a palliadarium with a tiger salamander and it's an adult, get ready to clean your filter every day because they will burrow. They create tunnels, which is great. That's what they do in nature. But then they, you know, will come out sometimes and go in the water. And within like 15 minutes, the water it looks like a mud puddle. It's disgusting. And so um, I have mine in a palliadarium. One of the my barred tiger salamanders I have in a, a palliadarium setup, but it's mainly land. But there's, you know, kind of like a little a little water feature and it kind of pumps water around and you know they've got some aquatic plants in there and some mosses and things like that but one of them always stays it's funny one of the barred tiger salamanders is always underground i'd like never see him so when i dig him up i, I feed him like every three months because he never comes up he never seems to lose weight either he just kind of i guess because he's not moving around a lot and then the other one just seems to stay in the water uh, those are my younger tiger salamanders they're they're only about a year and a half old the Blotch tigers I have are much bigger, and those are in a fully terrestrial setup. Those are, you know, over both over 10 inches. One's probably 11 and a half, 12 inches. And those are, you know, underground most of the time, too. You know, I've got mosses. Uh, you know, I do have a misting system, by the way. I use um, mist kings, <coughs> excuse me, um, and I have those going off, you know, on, on all my enclosures throughout the day. Uh, but, but my blotch tigers are in a completely terrestrial setup with a false bottom and a lot of ferns and pothos again they're they're pretty um they're, they're like big muppets think of a big muppet muppet just kind of burrowing through and knocking things over and just kind of making a mess out of your terrarium uh, <laughs> so those are my um or my uh my tiger salamander setups but you know they're they're easy i i think they're pretty easy they're fossorial so they're typically underground and um you know, in, in my opinion, they're they're pretty easy to take care of. 
uh, versus some of the other, you know, lungless salamander species. They eat a lot. You know, I feed them their staple in their diet is earthworms. Feed them dusted crickets and some waxworms on occasion. But really, it's just night crawlers. They'll take down a worm and go back down in their their little burrow, and I won't see them for another month and a half. So, uh, you know, I guess if I wanted them to breed, I don't know anybody in the U.S. who actually breeds them right now. I know in Germany some people do, but it's it's very it's notoriously difficult to breed them. Um, I know some people are trying. And it would be great to see some captive bred uh, tiger salamanders, but it, they, you know, it's, it's, it's apparently a tough feat. I've never, I've never tried it. So. Yeah. I'd be curious to see what happens in the future. It's interesting what you said though, about, about your tiger salamanders not moving much. I, I remember, right. I remember a while back and I, I just, I pulled this, I pulled the article up in front of me. There was an article in Smithsonian magazine. I think it was last year actually. And uh, these scientists have been studying Olm's, which is a mm-hmm. like a cave salamander species. They're all white. They look kind of like axolotls. They're kind of freaky looking. And this one individual, they somehow, I don't know exactly know how they did it, but it didn't move for seven years. It, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, it sat in the same spot for seven years. So it's amazing how, how just, I guess, time isn't a factor if you're a salamander. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, and I don't, you know, and I'm not certainly not a scientist. I, you know, there's a lot of smarter people with in the, on the subject of me, but, um, they definitely, especially in the winter time, you know, when they, they, they go below ground surface, you know, when it freezes, you know, they go into like a torpor state where they just kind of, they're not, it's like suspended animation. They're not necessarily hibernating, but they're, it's, it's like something in between. It's, 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 it's interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I think I've seen the same thing you're talking about on the Olms there. They just sit there and they get really old and they just, they, they can, to sit there and conserve energy, I guess, in, in those conditions. I mean, I mean, I think they're all blind, right? They're, 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 they're pretty much blind because of the environment they live in. Yeah, I believe so. I don't think, I mean, it, it, uh, the, in the picture, they don't have any eyes. So unless, right. unless they're right. doing something that I don't know about, I, <laughs> I can't imagine what you'd <laughs> see down there in pitch, in pitch darkness anyway. But now as, right. as, as far as the paludariums go, your builds are, I mean, I've seen people have a certain template for vivariums in, in different capacities, meaning different species. I've seen very, very elaborate vivariums for Abronia, which is a, you know, it's a, a genus of lizards, alligator lizards, I think is the common name. I've seen elaborate vivariums for dart frogs. You have these very elaborate paludariums for your salamanders, which are really beautiful. And I, I mean, I know, like I said, we don't normally get into paludariums with, um, with, with dart frogs too much, but Yours, you, you have like the water is crystal clear and it looks like you've got sand as a substrate and you've got, how, how are you doing this? Can you walk us through a build from start to finish? Because whatever you're doing is pretty impressive. Yeah, sure. And, and, you know, there's, I've always kind of had my own style, but there's, there's other people I've watched on YouTube. I think you've, you've had, uh, uh, Troy Goldberg on, I, I, you know, a long time ago, watched his videos, how he's done some of the, you know, some of the foaming and some of the, you know, using of you know, some of his techniques. So I've kind of, you know, luckily you've had really good, you know, artists like, you know, these, these, these people that, that have done this, you know, for a long time. And, and I, I always kind of have used natural materials myself, but there were certain things, you know, like in terms of using a false bottom, there's a, there's another YouTuber who's really popular now, Tanner Serpa from Serpa Design. And I, I you know, I took some, ideas from him from some of his DIYs in terms of how he drained his false bottoms. And, and I, I, in looking at how Troy did some of his things, uh, you know, some of his setups and his background and how he would do it. And I, what I tried to do is just think of like, you know, thinking of this, 
you know, specific species that I wanted to address, like what was the best template that I could kind of come up with? What was the best design I could come up with for that species, incorporating some of these things that can make, you know, the backgrounds look great, but also, you know, making it appropriate for the animal. And, and so I would say that my, you know, my go-to is, you know, let's just say I'm building something for, a, you know, it's going to be a paludarium. It's going to have a land and a water area. First thing I do is figure out, okay, well, how do I want the, you know, do I want it to look like a stream? Do I want it to look like a drip wall? Do I want it to look like, you know, what do I want it to look like? And so based on that, you know, knowing that I always use these external canister filters, I'll drill the, the holes, you know, typically a half inch or three quarter inch bulkhead, uh, you know, for the intake where I want the, you know, the water to get sucked out. And then I'll figure out where I want to put the return bulkhead in, you know, so if I wanted to drip wall, you know, maybe I'll have it, you know, kind of at the middle of the top of like, let's say a 40 gallon breeder. And so, you know, I'll go ahead and, and drill these holes, set it up, you know, water test it, make sure that, that there's no leaks or anything like that. And then the next thing I'll do is like, okay, well, I'm a big proponent of <clears throat> using real rocks. You know, I, I just, I, I've made fake rocks and, you know, I think it looks pretty good, but I, I really like sometimes foaming in, you know, the driftwood, the rock. Sometimes I'll still have a little bit of a fake background with, you know, I'll, 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 I'll paint it or do something, you know, um, you know, clearly that that's safe for the animals. But so what I'll do is I'll, I'll start working. I'll, I'll use uh, typically some kind of either insulation board or, or styrofoam or a crate light diffuser, which is like the plastic stuff. You know, it looks, it's like a crate plastic. It's, you can buy it at like Home Depot for like 18 bucks. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, what I do is I'll silicone that on the sides. I always put sides in the back. So I'll, I'll, I'll kind of make that as my, my bare bones kind of skeleton outline. You know, I've got my, my intake with the bulkhead, my, my return with the bulkhead. And then I've got my, uh, you know, I guess my skeleton of it, which is, you know, either the A crate or, or insulation foam. And what I've, what I've noticed is, is that I, I'll typically use like the great stuff, you know, like the black pond foam, uh, that it, it adheres a lot better to, it adheres to anything, including your clothes and skin. If you get it on you, like it never comes off. It's, it's horrible. I've, I've ruined three or four sweatshirts, jeans, shoes, my hands. Um, and you know, this stuff just doesn't come off. But I've, I've noticed it sticks really well to glass, but it sticks even better to other materials, especially if they're roughed up a little bit or like plastic. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll methodically have a design in my head. And typically, I'll, I'll get the idea from something I see in nature. I'll see a, a, a seep on the side of a mountain or I'll see a drip wall and, you know, coming down shale with moss growing everywhere. And like, oh, I found a sal you know, I found a red salamander there once, you know. So, like, let's see if I can re recreate that, you know, in a smaller design. And so... What I'll do is I'll start foaming in the rocks and the driftwood and, you know, kind of getting the design right. I'll go back and I'll, you know, scrape out some of the foam and, you know, touch things up. Maybe I'll, you know, put some cocoa fiber or some some organic soil, you know, topsoil or some, you know, some sphagnum moss. And I'll I'll kind of, you know, super glue it or silicone it in just to kind of cover up the areas that, you know, maybe had some foam. I'll, you know, let it dry. I'll vacuum it out, clean it out. And then so you've got your background and then. Basically, I'll, you know, if I have a land area, you know, then I'll, I'll kind of separate it using, I don't, you know, uh, not plex, you know, like acrylic or plexiglass, silicone that off, and then I'll build a false bottom, drill another small hole to, to, to drain the water out of, on that side, you know, just to, you know, kind of keep, keep the two, the, the two parts separate. And then, you know, I'll build up another, you know, water area, kind of your, you know, I guess, uh, 
your aquascape, if you will, around you know where where the acrylic and stuff is, and and so it takes it's a long process. But by the time you're done, you know you've got the backgrounds, you know you've got this cordoned off area for land with a drainage, you know, with a kind of a false bottom. You know, you can use I don't know like uh, you know hydrotin, or you know you can build one out of the acrate or or something else. Um, but you know whatever you know whatever I've done both. I, I you know it's, it's easier using like hydro balls. That stuff's a lot easier, and I like the way it it, it expands and absorbs water, but um, so, you know, once I get kind of that, the background done, then that's like 90% of the work. Then it's figuring out, like, to your point, the substrate, you know, I, I'll typically use for aquatic substrate, I'll use a little bit of fluval strata, maybe some seachem fluorite, you know, and, and then some sand, and, you know, I'll mix it in. And a lot of times, um, I'm lucky, my my wife and I recently uh, bought a log cabin out in the in the Appalachian Mountains, which is great. We're able to go out there and I have a stream on my property, so I can I'll take like a handful of of you know river pebbles and things like that 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 that'll match kind of the look that I've set up, and I'll you know clean them, disinfect them, all that stuff, and and then I'll use them on the bottom too to try to make it look as realistic as possible. And then you know once I've I've kind of got that substrate set up, then I'm starting to think, okay, well, what kind of plants? You know, 90% of what I use is mosses and liverworts. Just it's you know pretty common stuff. You know. You, think, like I said, you know, your, your kind of brook moss, fountain moss, stuff you'd actually find in a stream. I use uh, snakeskin liverworts, which also grow on the margin of streams and, you know, kind of under overhangs and in kind of uh, shaded areas. Um, and then I use, you know, I'll use ferns, things like that. And, um, and, and that's kind of how I plant it. In terms of the substrate on the land, I mean, that's, you know, depending if it's a tiger salamander, the, the substrate's a lot more important than if it's know some you know other animals but I, I typically use the same mix you know i'll use kind of organic topsoil i'll use uh coconut fiber dried sphagnum moss bark chips or like rep the bark i'll just go buy that and i'll just kind of mix it up and, and make it damp and then you know that's that's kind of the substrate for the land it's pretty simple and you know once once you kind of have that set up and you've got your the, the palladarium planted um you know that's kind of that's kind of it i mean it it, it does take a long time uh, to, to kind of, you know, cause there's, there's a lot of, as you can imagine, like you're building it up and you're like, this doesn't look right. You know, or you don't like the way the water's dripping and then so I'll tear something part of it down. And then you got to kind of go back in and refoam. I mean, this is clearly, you know, way in advance to adding any kind of anything into it, even the plants, but, um, it, it, that's kind of my, my process. I, you know, again, step one is, did I see some kind of set, you know, habitat out in the wild that, you know, this animal would really thrive in? And so that's kind of how I, I, I take the approach and kind of the steps and not, not, not one of them, you know, none of them are the same, but, but a lot of them are similar. I would say the steps I think I outlined are, are steps that I typically take uh, when I put this together. And, and like I said, I use an external canister filter, you know, you've got, I'll use either vinyl hoses or, uh, you know, I'll, I'll use like fluval um, canister filters like 207s usually for 40 gallon breeders that just they seem to work really well for it so i'll use the black hose that comes with that just cut it use uh, uh which mccall would uh you know to uh, hose clamps to, to tighten them up and it's pretty simple you know and then i get a timer with a light i'll install mist kings to the area that's not touched by the water feature and it's that's you know kind of off to the races but there's a lot a lot a lot a lot goes into it i think a lot of people um since i've been doing this have asked me oh you know like what does one of these things cost? I'm like, I, <laughs> I have no idea. You know, like I can tell you the materials cost me quite a bit. 
you know, my time, who knows, right? You know, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fun. And, you know, and I think, you know, if it can bring inspiration and, you know, if the videos, the DIY videos can, can help other people, just like, uh, like I mentioned before, I've watched other people's videos to get inspiration and good ideas, you know, then, then, you know, more power to it. It's kind of like, it's funny what you said about the cost. I mean, I think the only way I can describe it is that it's, uh, it's, it's priceless. <laughs> right. Right. But, um, exactly. it's like, uh, I, I kind of bring up the classic car hobby. I, I have a couple of friends who are into classic cars, and it's the same thing. It's just this evolving process, you know. I mean, no one really wants the car to be finished and complete. And you, that's great. You can stand back and look at it and be like, all right, now I got nothing left to do. So now I got to get another one. So it definitely snow it snowballs in terms of uh, in terms of price and commitment. I, I I don't even know how much I've spent on my builds. Uh, oh yeah, it's 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 a super. I mean, it's a look if you're if you're it's an expensive hobby in general, right? You know, you're going to keep, keep these animals. And, um, and I, I, I agree. It's, uh, you know, I think a lot of the fun in the, in this is building the, the setup. I mean, I'm sure there's some people who just, you know, want to observe the animals and there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, maybe they want to buy a finished product, but I think a lot of people, the fun in this, right. Is, is creating, you know, your own little work of art, you know, for your, your pet to live in and, 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 you know, your, your animals, and so for me, that's, that's the most fun part. I love obs- observing them. I mean, I, you know, after work, I go down there and I just, you know, stare at a salamander, you know, for, you know, walking around or, you know, climbing the, the, the wall or, you know, you know, hiding in the moss and, you know, de-stresses me. But, but part of it, part of it for me is really the, the kind of the artistic creation of, of creating the enclosure. So, you know, totally agree. It's a kind of a priceless thing. It's hard to, it's hard to put a price on something like that. Yeah. And. Another thing that interested me about your builds is, and I posted a video a while back on my social about um, the cabinet setup that I had for four of the 40-gallon breeders that I had, and um, you did the same thing. You have this really elaborate cabinet setup with like top um, like top access. I mean, how, how did that work out for you? Because presentation-wise, it really makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question. So I initially, I had like, you know, again, because it started like I never thought I was going to get back into keeping animals until about five or six years ago. And <clears throat> so, you know, I had them just on random stands I would buy or, you know, I'd build a random, you know, small stand for one. And eventually it started just taking up the entire area of our finished basement. I, I even had one of those like metal tool racks that you could put like 2000. My wife's like, what are you, you know, like, what are you doing? Like we were supposed to have like a like an Irish pub in our basement. And, like now we've got, you know, you've got this like Mortal Kombat machine over here and you've got you know, 25 tanks. And I was like, yeah, let me, let me, let me like fix this. So we, another part of our basement has, you know, is a pretty big room, but it's, it's taller than it is. There's a lot of room vertically. Right. And, and so I was like, how can I, how can I kind of, you know, do this? Cause some of these get pretty heavy. You've got rock, you've got water. And so uh, a, a, a friend of mine who builds, uh, he's a, he's a, a gr- an amazing carpenter, but helped me like redo my kitchen and things like that. I, I, I posed the idea to him and he had actually built a couple of, uh, aquarium stands and, and, a, and a really cool turtle enclosure, a custom turtle enclosure for some pretty big tortoises. And so I didn't even know he had done that. And I told him what I had in mind. I said, look, you know, I just, the majority of my setups are, are not that big. You know, they're, they're 40 gallon breeders. You know, I gave him the dimensions. I, I need to be able to access these from the top. Uh, because, you know, that's how I can get in. These aren't the, you know, kind of exoterrace where you can open them in the front, which, which I'm, by the way, getting more into now. I have a lot more of those now than I did before, just kind of on their own separate stands. But so he kind of designed it. We, we needed to figure out, you know, I, I, I figured I could stack 
three of them on top of each other with enough room to put lights and them to not be too close, you know, on top of each other. And, and he just, you know, this guy had built houses. And so he helped me out and we, we were able to build these, uh, these, these racks, you know, two 40 gallons. So there's six 40 gallons on, on you know, three on each rack and then, uh, one for a uh, 20 gallon long with two. And so, um, it, it was, it was great. You know, they've got hinges and, you know, you, you can kind of pull the doors up so you can access the top. And it, it's nice. It's nice. It makes it look nice and tidy. And in the back, you know, obviously it's a little bit more messy. But we were able to to kind of organize, you know, you know, I guess uh, cord management or whatever you want to call it in the background to to, to, to make sure that uh, everything is good. Because all the Miss King setup and all the cords and everything kind of run through the back. So the the front definitely looks a lot tidier than the back. Let's put it that way. But uh, but yeah, you know, it was good. You know, we stained the wood and you know took steps to make it look nice and put some you know, not too ugly, uh, uh, hardware on, on, on the, on the cabinet. So definitely it, it, it freed up the, you know, made my wife happy because I got this stuff out of the main part of the basement. And then I created like the salamander room and I have all these like really cool, uh, antique anatomical charts for salamanders and, you know, things kind of from the 19th century, early 20th century. And so I kind of just turned it into my own little, uh, you know, amphibian or salamander room, if you want to, you know, if you will. And, and the, the racks really, really, really work nicely into the room because it was kind of had weird dimensions. And it's like that one room in your house, you know, my, my house isn't even that old, but you know, I, I always remember going into older, older homes and, and seeing like the weird door, the weird, weird room that they had, like the, the strange dimensions. I'm like, what, what the heck did they build this for? You know, it's like, and, and so that's like, that's like the room in my house right now. And so we, uh, we were able to, to, to really make all the, the enclosures fit in there nicely. And so, yeah. And, and I have seen yours, by the way. Yeah. It, you've got some you know, a great setup as well. So it's, it's, it's always fun doing that. And, you know, I'm glad I was able to kind of get it, kind of get it, uh, into, into operation. Yeah. My goal originally was to have a front area that was, could be, view, I, I modeled it after his zoo exhibits that I had seen. And my idea was to have everything up in the front, you know, you couldn't see any lights or cords or anything like that. And then I'd have a behind-the-scenes area where I was able to do the maintenance. Well, the problem was I found that I really didn't need the behind-the-scenes area, with, with the exception of the, the Oscar Aquarium. So I kind of lost some space. I, I gave myself about two and a half feet to go back there to work. And then I realized I, I'm really not going in the back of the frog vivariums because there's background stuff and, you know, polyurethane foam and whatnot. I'm like, I can't, I can't even see what's going on in here. So I ended up just putting right. a big baker's rack in there and keeping my dubia roach colony and some plants. But it's but it's if you can get at them from the front, it's it's definitely a, a great effect. You know what works well actually for for cord storage or or hiding cords is wire mold. It's um ah, right. it's it's like plastic. Um, for anybody about that, anybody out there who's listening who doesn't know what it is, it's kind of like a plastic, uh, like a casing, like a long plastic, almost like a pipe, and it's got an adhesive on the back, and you can adhere it to different surfaces and whatnot it works really really well for hiding cords i got some black wire mold and i did that on my animal plastics enclosure for my snake because i, I hate cords everywhere and it was nice because i was able to tuck all those cords in and just really really hide them and i don't know just a little sorry to go off topic you, <laughs> no 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 it's a good it's a good it's a good idea i mean right now i'm just kind of using zip ties and things like that and kind of pinning them to, uh, you know, the back of these cabinets. So no, it's a, it's a real, it's a really good idea. I pr I'm probably going to actually, uh, implement that. So I <laughs> appreciate the color. Yeah, it's nice. It's, I was real happy with the results cause I'm, I've always been real attentive about it. I'm like, 
you know, we have this incredible hobby here that we focus so much on aesthetics and beauty and trying to replicate these natural things without any type of human influence. And we have wires and cords and timers and stuff like all over the place. And it's like, what, like, what, what are we doing? We're not even close, you know? So anything, right. anything to hide that stuff. But well, while we're on the subject of builds, you also have a very, very large build with two of the two examples of one of the coolest species ever. Um, you have you have uh, you have a pair of sirens, right? Greater greater sirens. I do. Yeah, I, I got them about a year ago at this point. Yeah, they're in a hundred and fifty gallon enclosure. Yep. All right, I had them years and years ago with very very limited success and yours look great they're they're huge they, they've got this incredible tank can you walk us through their care and how like how you'd set them up and what they what they eat and what their parameters are yeah yeah sure so yeah they're pretty tall i mean firstly they're pretty i mean they're found typically um in the on the coastal plains and marshes and, and things and you can pretty much find them anywhere they're they're very uh robust animals and and i i i always knew what they were i wasn't you know i I think initially what I wanted to do was have a mud puppy, uh, but you know they're extirpated from the state I live in, so you're not allowed to have them, even though they're fairly common in other places, which which is totally fine. I get it. And but uh, greater sirens actually don't really live where I live, and so they're you know I, I was able to own them, and there was someone who captively bred them on the west coast, and you know I started I, I started picking his brains on some of the you know some of the kind of salamander focus groups and you know he was pretty knowledgeable and you know i had done a lot of research and i said ah, you know they get pretty big they can get up to like three feet long and i was like i don't know do i really want to take up you know you put them in a you know buy something that that's as big as 150 gallons because i remember i'm used the biggest enclosure i had was like a 75 gallon for my tiger salamanders and so i i, I decided yeah this will this will be you know this this will be this will be a really interesting you know totally aquatic you know aquascape and and so i got the tank which was astronomically expensive but but you know i, I was just i was actually I, I i'll admit this i was even though i i really don't doubt my drilling my glass drilling skills i was like i'm not gonna drill this tank because if i break it like i'm just gonna cry because it was just it's so big and i was like i don't even know how i'm gonna get this thing out of here it, it was extremely heavy to move and um so but anyways uh, I, I bought two massive canister filters, and I started building a background out of uh, out of insulation board, and and you know, kind of carving it and adding some rocks here and there, and and so I didn't do the sides, but I did the background. I have two massive uh, canister filters, as I mentioned, and um, so so that was kind of the, the beginning of it. I was just deciding to not drill the glass and how I wanted to move forward with it. So I started building the background outside of the tank just because it was it's just you can't lay that tank on its back unless you've got I, I don't have anybody helping me with this stuff. So I, I started building the backgrounds outside of the enclosure. And then once I was done, it was three big pieces of insulation board. I was able to put them in, let them dry for about a week and and then started to figure out, you know, what would I want? I, I must have spent three hundred dollars on driftwood to put in this thing and um, just some big pieces. I had to let those soak for probably a month of soaking maybe a little less than a month just to try to get as much of the tannins out. And of course, and of course the first week I had them in the, the water turned like a tea color, you know, within like, within like a day. <laughs> so, um, but, but lots of rocks, big rocks, lots of um, driftwood. And then really the substrate was, you know, a bottom layer of, of fluval and uh, sea chem fluorite uh, for the substrate. And then I put in uh, sand on top because 
uh, they they like to burrow a little bit in mud, and you know I don't want to put mud in there. So uh, you know, lots of aquatic plants. Um, you know, as, as much as I could put in it, because they they also kind of mess stuff up. They uproot things because again, they're they're hiding in the sand and hiding under things, and um, so that that was kind of the setup. A pretty big uh, cleanup crew, including multiple amano and ghost shrimp, lots of nerites. Uh, I've got uh, I, an unlimited. I don't even know how many pond snails are in, are in there. I've got a ton of them, but they, I, I'm pretty sure they eat all that stuff because they, they keep disappearing. I mean, I'm pretty sure sirens will eat anything. And so, uh, you got to put lids. That's another big thing I, I want to mention, um, on, on tonight is that lids are like super important. Uh, even with, even with greater sirens, because they, I, they'll come up and put their nose to the, I've, I've watched them swim up and they'll press their nose up to the, the screen on the top to try to figure out their boundaries and, you know, wh what's what. And so but salamanders are escape artists. All of them are escape artists. If, if, if they can fit their head through it, they'll get out. So that's, that's just one thing I'll, I want to mention. Um, but, you know, and unfortunately I've had it happen to me. Uh, but so, you know, the sirens are really interesting. Uh, like I said, this, this guy had bred them. Um, so he waited a while until they, they had grown bigger and, and then he shipped them out to me. They came in great shape. They eat, uh, I typically feed them earthworms. Like I said, I think that they're eating a lot of the, the shrimp and things that are in there. Um, but I also feed him. There's like a, a, a he. I can't remember the name now. It's like a, it's like a sinking food that I didn't. I never thought that they would be able to eat it. But he, he, he mentioned it's got a lot of, uh, a lot of what they need in it. It's like a catfish food. But I, I supplement the worms with that, and they eat it. They're, they were already used to eating it before I got them. So the first time I dropped a couple pellets in there, they ate it. And um, I would say when I got them, they were like maybe ten or eleven inches. And I'd say now that they're like at least 18 if not longer i mean they, they they're they're growing in, and it's funny I, I i haven't sexed them i don't so i don't know what what they are but you're really not supposed to touch them and it's, it's really hard i can only really see them at night usually uh because they're they're nocturnal but one stays on one side of the tank and the other one stays on the other side so i don't know if that's a territorial thing if there's two males or or, or what the deal is but um but but they're getting big i mean even for a 150 gallon tank when i do see them swimming through i'm like what was the the phrase from Jaws? We're, we're you know you're going to need a bigger boat. Like that's what I feel about like the tank. You know, so it's, uh, it's it's definitely it's it's I could definitely see them outgrowing that. You know, if, if they get up to three feet, which I'm not saying they will, but uh, they're they're really really interesting animals. They it's it's amazing. I mean, I I feel like they feel the and I and I think this is part of their their physiology, but they feel the vibration in the water. When I drop a worm in, they immediately know where it is. I don't know that they see it well. But I think they feel the vibration and they 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 go towards it because it's like as soon as it hits the sand, they if they're not looking in that direction, they kind of move over to that to that area. It's like a, what was that what was that movie Tremors? Do you remember that where the the, the worms were were underground and it was like Kevin Bacon? That's that's what I feel like. They, they remind me of Tremors. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a perfect analogy, and it's funny because I was thinking of that as you were, as you were mentioning this. I mean, if anybody doesn't know, Tremors was this movie from. Like the mid '90s, it had Kevin Bacon and a couple of other famous uh, actors. It actually had the guy who was um, he was the dad on um, what was that show? Uh, oh, not Growing Pains. I know. Um, but I, it, I know what you're, yeah, I know, yeah. But in any event, about. in any event, it, it spawned this whole series of movies, and there were these like horrific looking things that they ended up calling them graboids, I think, and they were just these <laughs> yeah, like right. exactly. giant worm creatures that. I don't know, but go watch the movie. You'll you'll understand the analogy if you go watch the movie. But yeah, it's it, you're right. There's just these. It's amazing how certain things can navigate through their environment 
just by sound and feel alone. It just seems so, uh, it just seems so alien, I guess, when you think about it. Yeah, it's, that's, 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 that was the first thing that I realized when I started watching him eat the worms, like the, the earthworms I would put in there. I was like, this is just like tremors. These are like, they live underground. I mean, they're, they're hiding under the, the sand. They pop their heads up. And you know, as soon as they, you know, like it just kind of gently, you know, rests on the bottom, they, they'll swim over to it. So it's uh, they're very, very, you know, their, their senses are very acute for sure. So. Now, as far as the water parameters go, I'm going to assume these things make a fair amount of waste. Is there like a pH that you aim for? I mean, how, how do you, like, just overall in general, how do you make sure that the water quality is right for them? You know, I, I, I test water probably a lot less than, than I should with them. Um, again, because I, I, I'm doing, so I, I will just, I will just say this, actually, this is, um, I changed, I do almost a complete water change every two weeks in the tank. So I'll drain it, you know, through the, you can do it through the filter. It's pretty easy. And, um, and then I, and I basically refill it back up. Uh, it, I, I do test for night, you know, for make sure that the nitrate level isn't, you know, too high from the waste, but really the ghost shrimp, it, the tank is so heavily planted and there's so many, there's so much of, of a cleanup crew in there that I, I never see their waste. It's crazy. I never, you know, you would think that you, you know, got a spot clean, but I just, I haven't seen it. I don't know if it's because of the frequency of my water changes or if it's because the cleanup crew is so efficient, but I think a combination thereof is really kind of, um, the, the, you know, the, the, the reason why it's, it's not too dirty. Now I will say because of the sand there's silica, you know, silica in there. And I've gotten a, a diatom problem, just like brown algae, and I've been trying to get rid of that. So that's another reason why I'm I'm doing more water changes than I normally would. Um, you know, and I, again, because it's like almost a full water change. And um, but you know, they're they're pretty hardy animals, to be honest. I, I don't, you know, they they I probably keep them a little bit cooler than I should because of the room they're in. But I'm not going to heat the water. But they seem to be thriving. I mean, they they seem to be healthy, and you know, not you know, like in the mid to high 60s, you know, the water usually. Um, I think the two big LEDs, which, you know, I, I guess are, are not supposed to give off any warmth, but I think they do a little bit, to be honest. And, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, so, I, you know, I think I think it's paramount with any aquatic salamander species. It's water, you know, water quality. You know, water changes, temperature, and, um, and you know, just making sure that, obviously, you know, you're using RO water, you know, reverse osmosis, or, you know, you're just clearly dechlorinating it. Cause I have a, I have a water system. I have well water, but I have a, a you know, like a drip system in my house to, to clean the water. So, you know, I have to dechlorinate, even though the water is clean and I got to dechlorinate it if I use that. But I also use, I have an RO uh, spigot in my house as well and an RO uh, water system too. So I kind of mix the, mix the two when I, um, you know, fill their tanks up. What about uh, cleaning the glass? Because I noticed in your YouTube videos, your glass is immaculate. I mean, there's no watermarks. Or, there's nothing. It's like, it's like perfect. Yeah, it's it's hard. I won't lie. I I, I do have hard water, so I, I get hard water stains. So I gotta I clean the glass all the time. Like if there's algae, I scrub it off with a scrubber. Then I do I'll do that before I do the water change. Uh, I, you know, if there's hard water stains, I will, you know, take the animals out, take the water out. Um, it, it hasn't happened in a while, but, you know, I'll clean it with, you know, whatever I have to clean it with, um, you know, in terms of like a, a razor blade. I don't mean like using chemicals or anything like that and, and maybe use a little bit of rubbing alcohol, but it, it's, it's, 
it's not easy because I do have hard water and, and uh, it's there, there are there are more water stains than you can see. I'm just showing you I'm showing you the good sides of the tank. <laughs> you know, but there's definitely there's definitely some spots that are not that clean. But but I do it is a constant. That's why I mentioned at the very beginning, aquatic care, in my opinion, is is a lot is a lot more rigorous, a lot more difficult than than just having a uh, like like the terrariums I have for the um for the you know kind of fully terrestrial species. So it's it's just a constant maintenance thing. You know, like, like a little bit of time every day. You know, uh, a little bit more time on the weekends, just just you know, going down there and making sure to, you know, everything looks clean and and you know, and and you know, cleaning the tanks out and just making sure that the water is 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 still in good shape and you know, and that doesn't you know the the other thing is is like you have these things like you know you want to have a paludarium, you, you're going to get weird things happening. Like I got like four cyanobacteria outbreaks because. I guess there was too many nutrients in the tank or, you know, I was trying to understand why it kept happening and I was able to get rid of them. Uh, but it's like the, the, the blue green algae, you know, it's got that weird smell, like it smells like a swamp or something. And it just, it, it, it's, it's a nightmare sometimes cleaning these, you know, and, and you got to take the animals out and you got to, you know, clean the water, you know, get put, put, put whatever you got to put in. I use this, uh, it's like a blue green stain remover. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt anything. I've, I've never had a problem with it. It's like top life or something like that. I can't remember the brand, but um, it, it's actually a lifesaver. And then, you know, you, you kind of get rid of it. It takes a couple of weeks and then and then everything's fine. But, you know, it, it is a lot of work having paludariums. I think having a fully terrestrial, fully aquatic is OK, you know, with the aquatic still being more more work. But when you have the mixture, when you have a paludarium, just more. I think it's just a recipe for more things that potentially not go right. And, and so it's I, I spend the most time just trying to clean the paludariums out. <laughs> Do you ever have problems with um, substrate going anaerobic? You know what I mean, where it gets really, really sodden and it gets that really nasty smell. Um, I, because I have false bottoms, I haven't had it go anaerobic, but I've I have had like substrate in some of my enclosures, like the all, uh, you know, the terrestrial enclosures, where it's just it's just too wet. You know, it's a kind of like sopping, and so I'll I'll switch it out and put put other stuff in it, and then I'll maybe you know, reduce the amount of time that the, that the mist kings are going off. It's just, or, or, or maybe, you know, create more ventilation because it's just, you know, it's too humid in there and it's just, it's creating too much water. So I, I haven't had anything go anaerobic, but I've had, I've certainly had substrate get too, too wet, which, which I think, you know, isn't good. Like my, my arboreal salamander enclosure is like a, you know, like an ex, one of those exoterra that open from the front. And for whatever reason, I just leave the, the spigot on my, my false bottom which has got a little airline tube and it just drains into a bucket all the time because I need, I need a high humidity or, or, or water in there for all the moss and everything to continue to look okay and, and grow. But, um, but at the same time, I don't want the, the, the false bottom to fill up with water. And then to your point, having, you know, anaerobic, you know, bacteria, you know, and, and, and everything just going bad. So I just have the water constantly draining actually on a couple of them. So I have like a little, a flow valve and it just, uh, which I, I found, you know, with another YouTuber, um, uh, uh, Serpent Design, he he has an ingenious way of draining his his false bottoms, and I just I've been I've totally adopted that. It's like one of the probably the most ingenious things I've seen in in the hobby to drain false bottoms is just have this little airline tube which you know hooks onto a, a flow valve and it just drains it. And I just I have it going into buckets all the time, so I don't have to worry about it. I mean, it takes you know months for a bucket to fill up. So, um, but no, not, not nothing too bad, but definitely substrate that's too wet. So while we're on the topic of, of content creators, I know you mentioned, you mentioned Tanner Serpa and 
obviously you have your own YouTube channel as well. So do you want to tell us why you started the channel? Like what prompted you to do it and what you're showcasing on it? Yeah, 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 sure. So I think I, you know, I think the first thing is awareness just for salamanders. I, I, I had been back, like I mentioned in the hobby, you know, for a while, but, um, I had started to, you know, watch, you know, some of these people, like we just mentioned, you know, create some really cool enclosures and, you know, they do it for all these species that they, that they keep, you know, whether it's dart frogs or, you know, fire belly toads or, or reptiles or, you know, whatever, whatever it is or, or fish. And I was like, Man, nobody's really doing this for salamanders. I, I was like, you know, this is just something, you know, sal- salamanders are, you know, uh, uh, you know, to me, you know, the, the coolest animals on the planet. But, you know, I, I figured, you know, it would be great to, to, to showcase what I'm doing for them and show you, hey, you know, you can, you can build these really cool temperate, you know, because I love, don't get me wrong, I absolutely love, I, if I had the room, I would be probably into dart frogs too. And I would be building, I would be trying to build cool tropical enclosures. Um, but, you know, salamanders are, you know, the ones I, I'm very into uh, native species of, of North America. So, my setups are temperate, you know, everything's like a, a temperate setup. It's, I don't have any tropical setups. And, and so I didn't see a lot of those uh, out there. I, I saw a few, you know, really cool ones, but not a lot. And I figured, you know, why not combine, you know, one salamanders, right? Like raise awareness for salamanders, you know, show people that, you know, they can live in these cool enclosures or, or just even just, just awareness for the species, you know, for the, for the, for the animals. And, 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 you know, a lot of people, in my opinion, like the, they still don't really know what salamanders are, you know, it, it, it's funny. I mean, um, some people do and some people don't. And, and, and it's, I think it's, uh, I think frogs are definitely more popular and I, I love frogs too, but uh, I think that, you know, salamanders need some love and I figured, you know, why not just create, you know, a DIY, DIY, excuse me, DIY, yeah, DIY videos and, and show people how I, I, I kind of create uh, these enclosures for salamanders, talk a little bit about some of the, you know, my favorite species things that I see, you know, when I'm out hiking around in nature and, and, and just kind of sharing that with people. And really just, I think that was really the reason. And, and I think it just kind of grew a little bit. I think I just kind of was like, whatever, I'll just put this stuff up. And if people like it, great. And, and I, and I do, you know, I, I, got, I got a small following. I think people, um, you know, there's certainly a, a group out there that cares. I think, I think they are slowly getting more popular just with the advent of, you know, all the, all the groups on, on social media and things like that. And, um, and I just figure if this can help the hobby and, and, and raise awareness that, that these are really cool, unique animals and, you know, why not, why not do it? And so, um, you know, I think I got inspiration, like I said, from, from some of the other, other people who are doing it for different, uh, different types of animals and said, you know, why not, why not try to create something similar for, for salamanders and get the word out there that these are really cool animals. And, and, you know, I think that was kind of the, that was the initial idea. And I think it's kind of still the idea and, um, you know, if, if it can help people, I get a lot of questions all the time, you know, about, uh, I mean, I mean, I, I wake up every morning and I must have, you know, five or 10 new questions on, on the videos. Hey, would you, what do you think about this? What do you think about this species? What do you think about keeping this? Do you think it could live in this kind of enclosure? So, and it's great. I, I mean, it's just, it's generating discussion. And I think that that's the point of it. So. Yeah, it's definitely, look, it, it, I think that the exotics hobbies, I mean, when you and I were younger, it was just sort of the exotics hobby. You know what I mean? Like the same people kept green iguanas that, you know, you'd have the same guy who kept a green iguana and a red tail boa and a dart frog or a tree frog or whatever. It was always the same people. And it just seems like now as the hobby has progressed as a single entity, as the exotics hobby, it's just continuing to branch off to these points where you'll have people that keep one species altogether and don't even have never kept or don't even bother with other species at all 
which is it's pretty cool, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, for for sure. I think I think it's definitely evolved. I mean, like I said, I I, I didn't know that many people back then. And again, I don't really know at the end of the day if there's more people that are into the hobby or it's just that I'm connected now with these people in the hobby globally because you know we're all in the same uh groups you know the, these interest groups like on facebook or 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 you know or, or members subscribers for the same youtube channel you know what i mean it's, it's it's an interesting thing i actually think it's getting a lot more popular i think i think a lot of people out there with the youtube channels and and, and instagram pages and your podcast i think i think it's getting more popular and i think it's great because i think the hobby needs uh, you know positive light on it and and you know particularly salamanders like i said i feel like are 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 probably the less popular of, of the amphibians and um you know i think that just by by showcasing some of this stuff i think people get you know more into it even if it's just like somebody who sees it you know watches a youtube video and says man that's pretty cool i didn't even realize that those things look you know those things live under the leaves when i'm like walking through the woods like you know you know that's a that's a that's a win right you know that's like that's where i think the 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 reason is for this stuff. And so it, for me, it's been that that's been a driving force behind, you know, creating this. Yeah. I always felt that whenever I encountered salamanders in the wild, it was, at least for me, it may going to sound kind of silly and corny, but it was a special experience because frogs are everywhere. You know what I mean? They just, you, they're more visual. I mean, at least I should say in my part of the country, but you hear them. I hear them calling at night. I hear a bullfrogs calling when I walk past the pond. If I run into a salamander, it's usually by accident. Like I found one, I was in a water meter pit at work and I found one right. there and I was, I was as, as like elated. I was as happy. I was like, this is great. And, uh, I, he was on the water meter and I went to kind of just very gently nudge him off of it and he bit me and, <laughs> and I was like, this is, <laughs> this is as good as it gets. But yeah, they, they can be so elusive that it's gotta be really rewarding to, to just run into one. I mean, you're, you're also into field herping as well. Right. Obviously, frogs, like I said, you can hear them call and, and they're a little bit easier to detect. What are some tips to, like if you, you know, people are going out and they, they want to encounter some wild salamanders? Like what's what are some herping techniques that you'd recommend? Yeah, I mean, there's so a lot of people do different things. I mean, for me, I, I'm pretty much the same. Like I'm, I'm a creature of habit. Like all I don't typically go out at night. I mean, a lot of people will do this uh, road cruising at night where they'll go out. And they'll. Um, you know, it'll be a rainy night, you know, during breeding season and salamanders are crossing the road. I'm honestly too scared. I'll drive over one of them. You know, like I don't even, I don't know that I would forgive myself if I did that. So, um, I, I typically just, you know, w w when the weather gets a little bit warmer, right? Like right now, it's just, it's most of them are below ground surface. I'll go out, I'll go to <clears throat> creeks and streams and seeps and, you know, or just the woods, you know, looking under rocks, logs, leaf litter. I mean, really salamanders live under that stuff, you know, except, you know, at nighttime they'll come out in the hunt and, you know, you might see them on the surface, you know, kind of walking around. Like I've seen long tailed, long tailed salamanders pretty far away from water, just, you know, hunting uh, at nighttime, you know, uh, when I'm camping or something like that. And I'm like, I can't believe I, the salamander sitting on a tree stump right next to me right now. You know, I, I spent, you know, three hours today digging through muck trying to find one of these. And now it's just right next to me, next to my campfire. But um, so I, I think just, you know, if you really want to see salamanders, you know, walk along a creek bed, you know, under rocks, logs leaf litter they, they live under things um that's just their habitat uh, and so like when i create my my vivariums and my paludariums i'm always like okay what do i see on the surface that's what it needs to look like on top and then how can i try to make it look like that underneath too and and so but yeah for the most part right like you know frogs and some frogs are hard to find but 
you know, usually you'll, you'll see a frog, you know, floating in a pond or sitting on a bank of a creek or whatever. But salamanders, you're right, to your point, they're usually hidden. You know, they're, they're, they're elusive. They're, they're, they're hard to find. Um, and and it's, it's, it's definitely more difficult. But, you know, I, I think just looking, flipping logs, flipping rocks, uh, you know, clearly if, if you want to go at night on a rainy night when it gets warmer, you know, they may come out, you know, that they, they, they can have them come out. So they're looking for, you know, hunting for prey and things like that. So um, I'm just too lazy to go out at night anymore. <laughs> you know, I'll do it when I'm camping or something like that. But for the most part, I'm just like, you know, going on a long hike, finding a, 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 a creek or something like that. And, and again, it depends. Like I've never, you know, I've only found one tiger salamander in the wild here in the state I live in. And it was, it was underground. We, we were flipping some, you know, we found a burrow and we kind of, kind of busted it open a little bit. And it was the only time I've ever found a tiger salamander. I've, the only time other uh, fossorial species like that I found are spotted salamanders. And that was because it was breeding season. You know, I saw them in vernal pools, even during the daytime. Um, but I've never, you know, it, it's hard to find some, some of these, you know, they're they, like marbled salamanders you can find sometimes too, but, but for the most part, they're underground. So the salamanders, if, if, if you just are unfamiliar with salamanders, you want to find it, you could go in the woods, you can kick over a log and find a redback salamander, or there's other species too, like woodland salamanders that, that, you know, like, like that are like redbacks or slimy salamanders, which are all black. And you know, there's a lot of different subspecies, but, um, you know, you, you know, that, that, that's one way. And then clearly just, like I said, just following a creek bed. And flipping things over, eventually you're going to find stuff. There's a lot of, uh, um, you know, salamanders like two line salamanders and things, which are yellow and black two lines coming down. And uh, you know, those are fairly common. But things like that, you know, you you can find just 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 when you're out. You know, most times of the year, again, if it's not too cold, um, you know, you you can see those. And and so it's just really a matter of flipping, right? It's just it's it's you got to put in work. You, gotta, you know, it's like you could flip you could flip 20 logs and not find one. And then, you know, it's that 21st where there's three of them underneath it. So, yeah, the log, uh, the log flipping, <laughs> it's, 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 it's yeah. amazing. You're right. You just, I mean, it doesn't even have to be logs. Sometimes you'll, you'll, I've found things in like literal garbage dumps. Sometimes when you turn over like a 55 gallon drum and there's a snake underneath it, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just it's it's crazy. crazy. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. We're kind of winding down to the end, but I really wanted to hear your thoughts on where you think the salamander hobby is going to go in the future. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, as you know, there's there's a lot of, I think, um, external uh, variables, you know, out there that that could be uh, positive or negative catalysts. I, obviously, you know, the chytrid funguses, you know, you've got BD and then you which is already here, you know, in the U.S., but then you've got B-sal. So you've got the, the ban. And I, I think in theory, I understand why. I, I mean, I think testing, though, is the real way to to um, because it, when, I'm, when I'm when I'm thinking salamander hobby, I'm also thinking of, you know, salamanders globally. A lot of people like newts from other countries like the, you know, the, you know, there's there's all there's all kinds. You've got fire bellies and things like that. And, um, Kaiser newts and all this stuff, and um, you know, crocodile newts and things like that. And so I think that um, it's just going to depend on you know, can, you know, what, what's, what's going to happen with le legislation? What's, you know, is it, is, is B-Sal going to, you know, B-Sal makes it here. That's horrible because, right, we've got the highest concentration of, of salamander diversity in the world, um, you know, in the Appalachians and, you know, kind of in uh, Southern Appalachia and, and, and through the rest of kind of the, the country. I mean, right, you know, we've, but really, but really the Appalachian mountains and, and you know, that, that would be catastrophic. So, I mean, that, that's scary. Um, I, I don't know that it's going to happen. You know, hopefully it doesn't. 
Um, I'm, I'm optimistic that that it doesn't find its way here. But, you know, again, I'm just a hobbyist. I'm not a scientist. So I, I you know, I, I, I don't want to speak out of turn on that. Um, I, I hope that the, that, the, that the hobby gets more popular in that uh, there's more people that are interested in salamanders. Um, and if they are interested in owning them, that they're doing it in a responsible way, you know, captive bred animals, um, you know, and, and, you know, and it's hard, you know, a lot of people don't, don't breed salamanders, unfortunately, it's, it's, um, it's, it's not, um, it's, it's not that popular, but there are, there are some people like, you know, like I said, there's people in the groups that do stuff and uh, a lot of really smart, good people that, that do this. And so I would hope it gets that in general, the, the hobby, uh, the salamander hobby, at least, you know, when, when you look at the amphibian hobby and you kind of you know, laser in on salamanders that they get, that they get, you know, their, their, their day, right. You know, where they, they get more, um, um, notoriety, they get more exposure. People are more interested in just learning about them. You know, they're, they're an indicator species, right. You know, the water quality is bad. They're not going to be there. So they, they're, they're, they're extremely important. I think just in general to, um, our environment and, and, you know, our ecosystem, but at the same time, I, I think the more people learn, the more uh, it also raises aware, you know, like it raises awareness that, that these things live around us, particularly native species. Um, I, I know we were again talking offline, but, you know, a lot a lot of salamanders uh, where I grew up, uh, like spotted salamanders, things like I don't see them breeding here anymore. And it's overdevelopment. Water quality is poorer. It's dirtier. You know, there's there's deforestation. And so a lot of these things, you know, I'm all for progress and things, but, you know, in a responsible way. So I, 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 I I've seen it, you know, since the late 80s through the mid 90s to now it's 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 totally different uh a lot of the species that used to live around here i i don't see them you know like i just don't i don't i don't see the spotted salamanders i don't see the marbled salamanders i don't see their egg clutches i don't see anything um and so that that worries me and so i i think by raising awareness for you know you know my small part of this is by through the hobby and building these palliodariums vivariums whatever uh, that people can see that these are really cool animals. They're 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 amazing animals that 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 are very very important you know parts of our environment that we live in here natively and and so my my hope is that that you know more awareness is raised for them and and that we're able to uh, you know recognize them as an important part of our ecosystems and and you know make sure that we treasure them and that we um, you know like from a conservation standpoint we do everything that we can to 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 protect them. Um, so I, I think that you know, being a responsible hobbyist and, and not being, you know, and, 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 you know, to, to a degree can set a good example and, and just raise awareness for them. Cause again, I don't you know there's, there's, there's definitely groups out there that focus on salamanders, but I think it's few and far between um, in terms of good information and, 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 and people who do keep them. Um, so I'm, I'm just hoping to be one of the positive ones out there that, that can, you know, shed a, shed a light on, on, on this important animal. So. Well, I mean, it definitely comes across in your content. I, I just hate to see the hobby have a negative connotation in the grand scheme of things. And I feel like, I mean, this is just my, my opinion. I just, I feel like hobbyists often get painted with a brush that makes them look irresponsible and negligent. And I don't think that that's true. I think that there are a lot of people who are in the hobby that are working very, very hard to like you said, ex- expand the knowledge base. I mean, just just for a, a, pra- a, pra- a practical example, um, Sharpe is a breed of dog. At one point during World War II, the Sharpe was, I think, the, the rarest breed of dog on the planet, and it was in danger of going extinct. Well, you had a few fanciers who were had 
examples of the breed and they, and they bred it true to type, et cetera. And now we have Sharpays again. I mean, I'm not saying that we're going to, hobbyists are going to save anything from extinction because we're not. But the point is, right. we still haven't, we have, a, I like to believe, at least somewhat of an intimate understanding of how these things live, how they survive in captivity, what their habits are. And I feel like we're more attuned to what's going on with our native species around us. I mean, like you said about not noticing certain species, it's the same, it's the same thing for me. There's a lot of species that I just don't see in abundance anymore. And there are certain ones that I see overly abundant. So I'm not seeing leopard frogs anymore where I live, but I'm seeing a lot of bullfrogs. And I can tell you from having past guests, yeah, there's, there's a correlation there. But I feel like a lot of people in the general public and whatnot really don't understand that. And I feel like as hobbyists, we should have a more proactive role in, I guess, not just advocating for the hobby, but advocating for the species in general. So that's my that's my yeah. editorial. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm I'm with you. I agree. I, I I think it is. I think it's up to 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 people in the hobby. And there's a lot of great people in the hobby. I I rarely, to be honest, I rarely see bad example. I see people who are inexperienced asking questions, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. People just don't know. They're at, that's why they're asking. That's a good thing. Um, I, I don't, you know, in the salamander side, I, I mean, there's other people who have way more experience with way more species than I do, but I, I, I have seen some irresponsibleness, I would say, but, but it's few and far between most of the people that at least I've interacted with, you know, uh, have a similar sentiment with, you know, you know, wanting to advocate for the species and, and be a responsible hobbyist. And so, um, I, I, I think that, that overall, I think you know, the hobby is in a good spot. I just, again, I think it's just, it's just not a lot of people right now with salamanders. I, you know, again, I think, I think it would be great if it could even come close to, to getting the same attention that, that frogs do one day. And I'm not saying it ever will, but if it did, I, I think that that would draw a lot more attention to, um, just to the importance of, of, of the animal and, and, you know, what, it, what it does for the environment and, and what it can tell us because they're, they really are unique animals. And, and so, I think I think in the long run, I think the the future of the hobbies, you know, hopefully going to be good. I, I, use, I, I, I word we always used in finance, cautiously optimistic, kind of hedge your language with everything. But um, it's it's you know I'm cautiously optimistic for the hobby. You know, obviously, barring any kind of crazy you know fungal outbreak, chytrid outbreak, or, or something like that, which would be catastrophic. But um, I'm I'm hopeful that the people that are involved in it will continue to be involved and spread, you know, the right information to, to people who are more ex inexperienced that are, are, you know, genuinely interested in it and, and kind of go from there. It's just, you know, I guess only, only time will tell, but, but to be honest with the way social media is, I, I, you know, there's good and bad information, but I do feel like it brings a lot of people together and I think the right people connect and that power is, is, can be channeled for good for the hobby. And so I'm, I'm optimistic for that. Well, that's good. I, I definitely agree. I think that um, it's it, we, we spend a lot of time focusing on the negative and the, the positive things never really get the recognition that they need. But I don't know. That's just, I guess it's just the world we live in. So, Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, Mike, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It was it was very enlightening. And it's, it's really cool to see someone who works with salamanders building these really elaborate and well thought out paludariums and working with these incredible species. How can everyone find you on YouTube and social media if they want to check out some of your content? Yeah, sure. So it's pretty simple, just slithering salamander scapes um, on YouTube. You know, you know, if you like it, great. If not, let me know. If you don't, you know, I always love, uh, you know, positive feedback, but I also like, you know, constructive criticism. So 
um, Slithering Salamander Scapes is my YouTube channel. And then, um, you know, I have a, I'm a little bit newer on, uh, on Instagram. I've got, um, it's just Slithering Salamander. So uh, you can, you know, I, I put any kind of pictures I, I find just through kind of tramping through nature and, you know, salamanders that I, I find when I'm out hiking to my enclosures to, um, you know, anything kind of salamander related. So, you know, Slithering Salamander on Instagram and Slithering Salamander Scapes for uh, YouTube. So I, you know, and I appreciate you having me on. I, I'm, like I said, I'm a big fan of the show. I think you're doing a lot of positive stuff for the hobby, for the amphibian hobby in general. And, um, you know, really appreciate the opportunity. Well, that's kind of you say. I, I thank you for that. And it was my pleasure having you on the show. Great. All right. Well, I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, like I said, I love getting into new content like this. It's kind of uncharted territory for me. So it was my pleasure having Mike on the show. And be sure to check out his YouTube channel. It's some pretty cool stuff on there. I know if you guys like uh, Dark Frog builds, which I know most of my audience does, definitely check out his stuff because the Paladarian builds are pretty cool too. So... Other than that, I want to thank all of you for listening again, and I'll catch up with you guys again soon.